turn to the Word this morning. Let's open in prayer. Dear Lord God, we're grateful for the time in your Word. We're grateful for your faithful listening to the prayers of the righteous. We're grateful that it had such an effect in Mark's life, and he is with us today to serve the saints. Thank you for that willingness. We also ask that you would be touching the rest of us as well, and we'd be praying for each other, lifting each other up, that we might minister better both to the non-believers and to the believers. We'd ask you to be with us this morning as we look at your word. In your son's name, amen. Okay, did everyone get a sermon notes that wants them? Okay. You're looking to yourself, you're looking at the right side of the page, you're going, Romans 15, yes, that's what we're covering next. We've been in Romans. But you're smiling and you're saying, big type. Big type doesn't even cover the page. We're out of here in short order. You may be. But I might find great hidden wealth in these few words that I will have to go on at length about. So you might want to resort to prayer now. Now in Romans 14, which we covered last week, It had some warnings to us or some instructions to us that we ought to welcome the brothers, but not for disputes over opinions. For the man who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not for disputes over opinions. We find ourselves judging the believers all too readily. Now in Rome, there has been a problem. There was a Jewish-Gentile-Christian problem. The Jews, nose in the air, were the people of God. Uh, Gentile second-tier Christians. We're first-tier because we're Jews, too. And the Gentiles, so the Gentiles had a bad attitude back. And Paul was trying to explain throughout Romans how we're all subject to sin, that faith is the great equalizer, that we're all being brought into Christ because we all need Christ because the sin of the Jew is no different than the sin of the Gentile, and the forgiveness of God was paid out for both. That's been the broad topic. Watch out for the attitude of the Gentile who thinks because God has sent Jesus Christ to benefit them that they can lift themselves up over the Jew. And the Jew, because they've got millennia of credits, that they somehow are automatically the aristocracy of Christianity. That's the background, and it's going to be in this chapter, but if you don't remember that background, you're not going to see it. We don't have that problem. We're largely um, Gentile, good Anglo-Saxon stock with a couple Sicilians. Okay? Now, and one, Nicaraguan. Anybody else from an ethnos that is not Anglo-Saxon? Okay, we're all Gentiles. We don't have this tension in the community between the Jew and the Gentile. But the, the tension between the Jew and the Gentile is not the only tension that exists in the world. And it's not the only tension that does exist, that can exist in a Christian body of believers. Verse 1, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. In this verse, like the first verse of Romans 14, the assumption is when you hear it, because you all think you're right, right? We're all 
we wouldn't hold the views we held if we didn't think we were right. And we think, we don't go around saying, yes, I'm a weak Christian. I'm, well, some of you might. You might be humble or just introspective. But most of us uh, would, would, would like to think of ourselves as, okay, oh, yeah, I got my life in gear. I'm, I'm, I'm doing well enough. The instruction is to those who believe you're doing well enough, who believe that you are strong. You may be. You may be strong. And the problem with strong Christians is impatience with weak ones. Especially when they fail. It's assumed here. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. We're not just talking about weak Christians who are you know, you know, in Bible study with you and you're mentoring, or I hate that word, discipling, I don't like that one either. <laughs> being a Christian, okay, just being a Christian. Trying to be a Christian. You say you don't see them as failing. Oh, sure, they're growing, they're young. Lots of patience with the growing young Christian. But the growing stupid one, or the, actually, they're not growing. The young Christian, the weak Christian, who's failing, who's being an idiot, Dating non-believers or something like that. Drinking to excess or having, you know, just not getting it figured out. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Because what is not bearing with the failings of the weak? There is... The reason, the instruction from God is to bear with them. So we're not pleasing God. We think we're pleasing God, right? When I have that huffy, I'm a better Christian than you, and can't you just get it straight? I'm not, I'd like to tell myself that my attitude is a pleasure to God, but since Paul tells me otherwise, I can't claim that now. Why am I doing it? Why am I doing it? When you look down on another Christian because he is weak and failing, which he may be, it's assumed that he is. We're not saying when you perceive that he is weak and failing, but he really is. In the objective universe, this guy has failed. And you, agreeing with the objective universe, realize that he has failed. And when you get huffy, when you do not bear with their failings... You're not doing it to please God. You're not measuring yourself up in some way that, that will, God will be happy with you because you just learned just now that that's not what you're supposed to do. So why are you doing it? You're doing it to please yourself. But it says not to please ourselves. Oh, because so much, it says in Corinthians, I forget which passage precisely, that we compare ourselves one to another. We like doing it that way. Because when you're growing as a Christian, it's much better, rather than looking up the hill to where God is and how much further you get to go, we like looking downhill because it shows us how far off the valley floor we are. We feel like we're on mountaintops with, with, with our Christianity. So we like focusing on people who haven't got it figured out what you've got figured out. It pleases you. Let each of us please his neighbor. Don't please us. We bear with their failings. We don't find ourselves motivated by pleasing ourselves. 
Our motivation is to please them, to please the failing, weak Christian. For his good, to edify him. So it's not just um, some guy comes to you and says, well, I'm dating a non-Christian and, you know, I'd really like for your approval. Well, it tells me to please him, so I better say yes. I should say, why, yes, enjoy dating this non-believing woman. And if you happen to marry her, I'd be happy to do the ceremony or something like that. That would please him. But it wouldn't be for his good, nor would it be to edify him. Those are also in bold there, verse 2. Please his neighbor for his good to edify him. But my, but my, my gauge of what I'm doing is the pleasure of the other person. The pleasure of the person who I view as below me. Oh, verse 3, for Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach thee fell on me. Christ, boy, you can't remind yourself of this enough. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. While you were a weak failure, deserving of eternal destruction, Christ died for you. Christ took, we call it propitiation in theological terms, which is the turning aside of wrath. He is the propitiation for our sins. God's wrath fell on Christ rather than fell on you. The reproaches that reproach thee fell on me. As believers, that's David, out of Psalm 69, I think. David is, is, is speaking the mind of what ought to be the mind of the Christian. Are you able to view your walk with Christ as you grow in grace, as you become stronger, that when you look back behind you, you look back to go back and carry some of their load, to give yourself your time to them so that they're edified, so good is done to them, rather than tisk tisk, They don't have it quite figured out. Now, inside a family of believers like we have here, because we're kind of a family and kind of like each other, a little more readiness to do that. But Christianity, remember, has had 2,000 years to segregate the weak Christians over into different denominations. Because they have an incorrect view of God or, or the Christian life or the way things are being, they, they, they find themselves over in another group. Or because they're emotionally weak, they find some place that gives them emotional solace, which isn't a very strong place to be. And so we come to this church, this All Souls Christian, where we're rigorous rationally, and we're biblical and historic, grammatical, interpretive methods, and we got it right. And we're the strong ones, right? We're the, we're the ones that, that actually read our Bibles and pay attention. And, and my gosh, we even look at the hymns for crying out loud to find out whether we said the right thing. We're serious. We've got to be sure that we set our sense of ourselves in the community. Let's just assume that God has been good to us. God's grace has helped measure us out a certain degree of brain power in this, 
in this uh, congregation that we think about our faith and we think about how to please God. And to this morning we're learning that many of those people that we need to support and bear with and please help and edify don't come to this church. Charismatic church, another Protestant church, and they might even be people who think they're stronger than you in the faith, but they're not. Because you know that they're walking a, a certain edge uh, in their lives that, that ought not be walked, or their families are not doing well. We're looking at them and we're seeing real failings, we see real weakness, and our whole effort, just like with the Jew and the Gentile, he's asking Jew and Gentiles, whichever side view themselves as the strongest in this, to bear with the failings of the weak. To help them. To have the motivation be not yourself and how to ratchet your own position up higher. God is going to be blessing you. Your position in Christ is by the grace of God. You will raise in your position. You will be asked up higher. That's an interesting way to look at it. I just thought of it. But uh, You know that, that passage, that parable, where you walk into a dinner, you don't take the highest seat. You may ask to be stepped down a little bit lower. You take the lowest seat and you're moved up by the master. You get honored. If we labor to be pleasing the other, pleasing the weak, then our elevation is entirely at the will of our master. We get elevated by grace. We get elevated. We get made stronger. We get better walks with Christ because we've been obedient to this. The world thinks in terms of self, right? Not always selfish, but always self-interested. And uh, we can't avoid being self-interested. We became Christians out of self-interest. Well and good. We know that's natural. We have to watch out that we don't live our lives constantly having all Evan all the time. How does it affect me? Do you find yourself always being offended by somebody? You're always uh, put out. You're always measuring how you are affected. You ever forget how you are involved? You ever stop and go, but my whole, I was really concerned about whether they were offended. To please our neighbors, to, good, to do good to them, to edify him. For Christ did not please himself. Now that verse that he quotes, I have it over on the side, Psalm 69, 9. For zeal for thy house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult thee have fallen on me. Did you recognize another part of that verse? Zeal for thy house has consumed me. Remember where that came from? Well, it comes from Psalm 69, 9, but uh, where was it fulfilled? Anybody remember? Thank you, Al. Um, Christ driving the money changers out of the temple. For zeal for thy house has consumed me. And why was Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple? He says, my house was to be a house of prayer for the Gentiles, and you have made it a den of robbers. Christ, in his ministry, was protecting not the Jewish aspect of the temple, because the Jewish aspect of the temple was unaffected by the presence of the money changers. 
the Jews weren't hindered by the money changers. But they were in Solomon's porch, Solomon's portico along the east side. It was a colonnade, double colonnade. And they would use that covered area for all these money-changing stalls and selling of, of sacrifices. And the problem was that was the court of the Gentiles. And he said, you've taken the part that was belonging to the non-Jew who could come and worship Yahweh in Jerusalem, and you have made it a den of robbers. It was to be a house of prayer for the nations. For the nations, not for Israel. So when Paul quotes this, it's all, you know, there's this, there's this portion, this remnant. This, he quotes the second half of the verse. But he's applying the second half of the verse when the first half of the verse has already been applied to Christ. He's applying it to Christ. He says, verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Now we're on topic here. You say, well, you mean everything? I thought that the Old Testament, like the law, was no longer applicable to the Christian. Well, that being said, but the way... He is looking at this circumstance of the unity of the believer. He's looking back to the Old Testament and saying, the Old Testament sustains this. It was written for your instruction that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, the hope here, it doesn't clarify that the hope is like the life life eternal hope. Life hereafter hope. The whole topic of the cha- this portion of the chapter is the harmony of Christians, especially Jew and Gentile, getting along. And he's saying the scriptures, we are encouraged by the scriptures. But we have to stand in it by steadfastness, by being instructed by the Old Testament. We are given hope by what we pick up there. The Gentiles were viewed as as sort of a second-tier Christianity. And it's so easy. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's The Inner Ring, one one of the concepts of The Inner Ring is everyone likes to belong into a group that excludes other people. To be included, one of the joys of being included is the Allowance to exclude the others. Well, there's one in response to the exclusive group. You formed the Rotary, I'm forming Kiwanis. You know, know, we form your own group that exclude them, exclude them back. And that's what happens in Christian circles. Well, they want to be really snotty about their beliefs about the baptism of the Holy Ghost or whatever else they are. And they won't let me, well, I'll show them, I'll start, you know... So we have denominations, not just people who are being really, really tight and they drive out the true Christians, but sometimes those people who are driven out go off in their exclusivity and are not steadfast in their, their desire to command unity. Part of the steadfastness is that we not let this slip away from us, that we insist on being together with the believers that you don't have the option, first tier, right here. First tier in your families, with your immediate friends, and those you fellowship with on a regular basis. Do not, your steadfastness is to not let these circumstances interrupt your fellowship. 
And when it starts to interrupt your fellowship, you say, how was I living to please myself? How was my attitude, my speech geared to please me and not please the other guy? We're supposed to be instructed to be steadfast, encouraged by the scriptures, hoping to gain what we're given here. May the God of steadfastness, verse 5, and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's absolute commitment to the unity of the saints. Because if I am being taught by the God of the Scriptures, in the Scriptures, the steadfastness and encouragement I'm getting is from a God of steadfastness and encouragement, and His grant is harmony, Accord, and we could come up with uh, all sorts of ways. You go to a, a secular uh, trade show or seminar or something like that. They have all sorts of ways, you know, to create team identity. Uh, the militaries like that. They create team cohesion with different little drills you go through and and hierarchies and all the rest. And all too often, Christians do exactly the same thing. They're not waiting on the God of steadfastness and encouragement to draw them together. They just wait a time, drive out all the persons that irritate them, create a cohesion that is secular around the people that agree with them. Instead of welcoming the weaker brother and not for disputes over opinions, they say, okay, we put a sign up that says we're the first muckety-muck church of Moscow, Idaho, and all those who believe in muckety-muck come here. And then we'll create an organization and a series of of bureaucracies and teams by which we'll call that body life. We'll call that the fellowship and the unity of the saints. But that's not the God of steadfastness. He takes the worst division in history, Jew and Gentile. He takes the worst division and divides the, takes that division, breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, and makes one man in the place of two. But the believer has to say, I am steadfastly committed to this, and I am living out the ethic that my God, who is the God of this encouragement, expects of me. And it has to be in accord with Christ Jesus. I can't just have a harmony that I create. Because we could have a harmony here. I'd rather not check on your theology because I'd rather not know what you have come to believe because Lord knows it's hellacious. Okay? I just figure by slowly, the, the Chinese water torture, I will slowly bend your minds to completely agree with me. But whether you ever do or not, the harmony ought not be by those methods. We have to have harmony now, even though you're a bohunkus. Okay? Even though you wouldn't know a right belief from a hole in the ground, you come here and listen and fellowship with the saints, and there has to be harmony. It's in accord with our Lord. It's not one that we create in a human way. It's in accord with Jesus Christ. And you say, well, doesn't they, don't they have to have some basic doctrinal agreement with you? Because we want to 
one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The end result is we together do this. So we can't have someone together with us, you know, singing Hare Krishna over on one end of the aisle. We're ending up glorifying Yahweh. The next verse, verse 7, helps us out here. Welcome one another, therefore, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another, for Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It's a great system of unity. Because your unity with the believers is by you being brought into the life of Christ. You're being brought into the life of Christ, and you finding others who have as well. People that have been changed. If God has welcomed you, remember, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. The reproaches that were to fall on you fell on me. This is our whole ministry is one of grace. And you've received a grace of welcome. And your eye scans the people you know and you say, God's welcomed him. God's welcomed her. I've been welcomed. And because I have, I ought to. Something you've probably heard me say before. If God has fellowship with them, you ought to. And you've got to be very, very spiritually conscious, not worldly systems conscious, where you don't go, oh, Greek Orthodox, huh? Automatically, you're out. Now, Greek Orthodoxy is very strange. I don't believe that it is an accurate representation of Jesus Christ and the Gospel. But I know that it is possible that someone who happens to be Greek Orthodox could have passed from death to life. And they might not know, What's wrong with Greek Orthodoxy and why they shouldn't be one? Just like they might not know why they shouldn't be a charismatic. They might not know why they... they, Weaker brother caught up in their failings and I am to bear with them. And my whole welcome to them is not so that they would stay the way they are because I'm to build them up for his good to edify him. But I'm doing it by bearing with. And I am recognizing him by him passing from death to life. Has God welcomed him? And you have to ask yourself, is anybody going to look at me, any of my fellow Christians going to look at me and say, it is undeniable that God has welcomed him or her. It is undeniable that there's a vast difference between a non-Christian and you. That's how we are to measure out our drive for unity. Welcome one another, therefore, as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Remember, he's got this audience of Jewish, Roman, and Gentile Roman who are having a hard time getting along. And he says, he, he verifies the Jew here, right? I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness and to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's what we, what we saw come out of the Old Testament. And he quotes a series of verses. Remember how he's been saying, uh, I, I just mentioned the first half of 69.9 in the Psalms as being 
toward the Gentiles. God uh, protected the Gentile rights. But these next verses that he gives, uh, three out of Psalms and one out of Isaiah, as it is written, Therefore I praise thee among the Gentiles and sing thy name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And further Isaiah says, The root of Jesse shall come, he who rises to rule the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. He's telling this audience in Rome of Jew and Gentile, God prepared the way for these Gentile believers in Christ. The root of Jesse is the Christ. That is an encouragement, a steadfastness that you belong with the believers. Because the same mercy that saved the Jew saved you. In that one verse it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. We're not allowed to go, okay, we the Gentile church, or we the rationalist objectivist church, or we the, you know, Arminian freedom of the will church, or we whatever church you, you want to belong to, we're not supposed to be doing it that way. If the other people are weak, we're to bear with them. If Christ has welcomed them in accord with Jesus Christ, we should be steadfast and encouraged in the hope that unity is possible. When you look at the Old Testament scriptures, it was there for our instruction and benefit. And when you look at it, you begin to realize this is the God you worship. I encourage you to read the Old Testament. It's not some other whole hairy thunderer God. Here's the Jesus, the God of love. Sort of, you know, if you take St. Francis of Assisi and make him a little bit bigger, it's Jesus. That sort of notion. That's just a little too soft and fuzzy for Jesus. It's not that the God of the Old Testament is this non-soft and fuzzy and only some sort of eth uh, ethnocentrist for the Jews because he loves the Gentiles. He was working through the Jews and he loved the Gentiles and we see our God. We see that we really are having faith out of earlier in Romans that, that Abraham had. We are children of Abraham. We are true Jews. Your God, you'll recognize in the Old Testament. You will see him pointing to you. The Holy Spirit will take your belief and make something out of it. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. What kind of cynicism do you carry around about Christian unity, Christian harmony? You know, just no hopes? Too fractured? Too many centuries? It's a study any history of the Christian church. It's not a pleasant read. They kill each other. They torture each other. They line up armies on the field of battle and charge at each other. In a community like ours, we see division, we see animosity, we see bitterness between believers. And so you're, you're almost asked, oh, who are you to be thinking of hope at a time like this? Because this is a hope of unity. And it's the God of hope is filling you with such joy and peace in believing. Your belief 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be given hope. Because you're going to see that ministering your life by the welcome you received, by the belief you had, by the peace you get, by the joy you carry around. And then if you just obey this one verse up at the top, just don't be working to please yourself. Please your neighbor. You've heard that famous commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Kind of echoes a little bit here. Just do the one commandment. That's all we ask. You can write off the rest. Just love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we also know from earlier in Romans that that fulfills everything. Everything you're required to do if you would just stop thinking about you for a minute. The God of hope will fill you with hope. You'll seem like kind of an idealist to other believers. Oh, getting along after all these years, I mean, too much water under the bridge, too much hatred, too much bitterness. Not for people who've been welcomed by Christ, because you've been welcomed by Christ, and if you live for other people, it edifies them. And everyone likes to be edified by someone else, built up, ministered to. As long as it's not obsequious. I mean, don't be greasy about it. But be a benefit to the people around you. Give your time to them. Well, they never give their time to me. Too bad for you then. I guess if you were important, it puts you in the verse. Oh, and don't, take, don't forget to take time for yourself. Don't worry, you'll work in time for you. Okay? Let's thank God. Dear Lord God, we're grateful for your kindnesses to us. Your welcome of us. We'd ask that we would not be faithless to that welcome. That we'd see those that you have welcomed as well and seek to edify them, build them up, look to their interests, and not live for ourselves. Especially those, Lord, that are weak and failing. In your Son's name, amen. About two more.